This is Journey Church Podcast. Here at Journey, we believe in encountering God and embracing people. From wherever you're listening, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, everyone. I feel like I have to be Clement, like somehow have some kind of like, and I never know. I can only think of jokes when the end of it comes. So I'm sorry for those of you that were wanting a dramatic intro. Uh, Well, you got a dramatic intro, and now you got me. Um, We are going to continue in our series on Revelation. If this is your first week here, I know you are thinking to yourself, what kind of church have I come to that they are doing a 45-week series? No, it's not 45 weeks. Ten. Uh, Ten ten weeks on Revelation. Um, And so if it's your first week here, um, I, I... I am not apologizing for doing Revelation because I actually think we need to be a a church that teaches the whole Word of God, and that even means the parts that are tricky, um, the parts that are difficult. And today, so up until this point, a few of you talked to me in the lobby and you said, it doesn't really seem like we've been talking about Revelation because it doesn't seem that tricky. It seems like you've been soft-selling it. So welcome to this week where we talk about Revelation chapter 11. Um, If you were looking for the strange and the wild, you have come on the right Sunday. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation chapter 11. Uh, This is where the text gets a little bit wild. So from Revelation 1 basically to 5, such a beautiful uh, it's, it's easy. You read it and you think, yes, Jesus, the revelation is about the unveiling of Jesus. And then you get to Revelation 5, 6, really, and it gets a little bit wild. Revelation 11 is, in fact, theologians think the most difficult, theo- theologically the most difficult chapter in the Bible. So, praise the Lord, we're going to talk about it today. Um, Before I get to reading the text, though, I want to make a few comments about the nature of apocalyptic literature. Uh, The first thing is this. So apocalyptic literature, you'll find apocalyptic literature from Genesis, really, to Revelation, particularly if you look in the prophets in the Old Testament, when you talk about Daniel, Zechariah, a bunch of these uh, uh, minor prophets, as well as when we get into Revelation, There are a few things that apocalyptic literature teaches us, though, and if we don't hold these uh, right out, you'll read it and think, I don't understand. The first thing is this, is that God is not confined to one method of communication. And this indicates that God is a God for all people. Uh, How many of you here would say that in general, generally speaking, you're a linear thinker? Okay, so by that I mean like you're kind of, you pride yourself on being logical. How many of you here? <laughs> See, you're all kind of embarrassed that you're logical. Listen, I'm gonna gonna make some generalizations about careers here. If you're an engineer, you're probably logical. If you're an accountant, probably logical. Anything to do with if you've ever used the equation E equals M C squared, logical. Okay, so this this a lot of you, this is what it looked like. Seventy percent of the room was like this. It could be me, maybe. And if you are sitting with a spouse and you, you kind of put your hand, it's because sometimes you're afraid that you're kind of emotional too, but you don't want to admit it. Like, for instance, I always say to Dave, I'm a very logical person, and he's generally quiet when I say that. Uh, I am most of the time. 
Uh, but, but listen to me, not everybody thinks the same way. So you're a linear thinker, wonderful. Do you know what you love? You love getting to Romans, where it tells you in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Like it's very straightforward. Like just believe it, go forward. But there are those of us amongst us, and you did not put up your hands, you are not a linear thinker, you're more like artistic. And in general, in the last 100 years, the church has not been really good for people like this. It's been tricky because it seems, I think, for people, and I've talked to some of you about this, it seems like the way that you think is sort of degraded. Revelation is the book that God reminds us that he speaks in poetry. He speaks with big pictures and confounding images. And God is like an artist in the book of Revelation. If you've ever been to a modern art museum, a couple of um, months ago, Dave and I had a chance to go to a bunch of museums. And some of them were, had modern art in them. And I was remembering that the God of order and beauty is also a God who is a modern artist. And the book of Revelation reminds us that he's a God of, for everybody, not just certain kinds of people. I am certainly glad on Monday morning that he is a God for everybody. The second thing it reminds us is that as we study the book of Revelation together, we are in fact underscoring that the gospel is for everyone. Have you ever had somebody say, well, that's nice for you, but not for me? When we study this book together, do you, do you know what we're saying? This is this is for you too. Like I, I might not be this kind of like avant-garde thinker, but I'm, go I'm gonna lean into this because God is a God not just for me and the way that I think, but also for you. Finally, and I think this is, we, we've gotta lean into this. The mystery of Revelation is really important for us to enter into. The mystery of it. If you were looking for a 10-week series where you'd be like, now I understand everything that the book of Revelation says. I'm sorry, you're attending the wrong church. Um, if God is not in some ways mysterious to us, if we have lost our sense of mystery and wonder, I want to venture to think that we've created God in our own image. So God must be mysterious. We must read the text. There must be times where we read the text and think, what? It's a good reminder to us that God is God and you are not. So here's our plan for today. We're going to read Revelation uh, chapter 11. I'm going to give you a little bit of background about it before we read it. And then we're going to look through the text, looking at the images and symbols and metaphors. Then we're going to summarize what God might be saying to us through the text. We will not get through every line. There's a lot of numbers in Revelation chapter 11, and we won't get to everyone. But I, I am praying that God's going to speak to you, to all of us collectively. Uh, so Revelation 11 is the last part of the second act of Revelation. In our first week, we talked about how Revelation is broken up into five different acts. This is the last part of the second act. And two weeks ago, we looked at the lion who majestically turns into a lamb. We talked about how the scripture reminds us that the weight of victory is never through the lion, but always through the lamb. And that preach is nice. That's like really nice to say, and it sounds metaphorical. It's, it's a little bit different to live it, though, isn't it? Do you know when someone's coming at you like a lion? 
What is it that you, I, at least for me, when someone's coming at me like a lion, what I want to do is be a bigger lion. Can anybody else admit that? When your child is coming at you like a lion, you know this mama lion will not be run over by a child lion. I will roar and it will be loud. And I had to keep in my head a number of times this week that the way to victory is through the lamb. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have boundaries, that we get run over, but it does mean that our posture must be one of sacrifice and service to people, gentleness. Okay, so after the lion turns into the lamb, Revelation turns into a series of judgments. And this is where it's really important that we preach the whole word of God. So God is a God of grace, but he is certainly a God of justice. We can never, I, I think in the 21st century, we've tried to soft sell. Like, oh, God didn't really, he wasn't really sending judgments, but if you've read Revelation 5 through 11, there's no way that you can say he isn't. He is a God of justice. And this is how we know he's love, because you can't have love without justice. And so as we read through these uh, series of judgments, we are not reading, okay, so now this is just for your uh, own study. We're not reading historical events happening in sequence. Okay, so you've got um, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, and there's seven of each one. It's not a series of 21 historical events. Um, it's a series, John is um, going around the same historical dynamics three times from three different perspectives. So the seven seals, if you're taking notes, are from the perspective of the church experiencing opposition and persecution. The seven trumpets are from the perspective of the world experiencing God's actions in history as judgment. And the seven bowls are from the perspective of heaven working out justice when the call of the trumpets is not being heeded. Revelation's really, really serious about this idea that we have to be a people who heed God's voice. We cannot just be like, you know, and if I feel like it, sounds like a good idea. There, there's no room. God, God is not a God that says, you know, if you feel like doing this, feel free. Uh, he is a God of strength, power, speaks clearly to us, and should, and the word of God should cause us to feel conviction. That is not the same. Conviction and shame are not the same. Shame keeps you trapped in your own junk over and over again. Conviction causes you to, to look at yourself and then ask the Lord to help you and to turn from it. Okay, so here's a technical thing that happens in both the opening of the seals and the sounding of the trumpets. There is this interlude that happens, okay? So at, at the seal number six, between seal number six and seal number seven, there's this interlude that happens between trumpet number six and tr trumpet number seven. There's an interlude that happens. And in both of these interludes, there is a question that is being raised. Um, the seal interlude is answering the question, who can stand? If you were with us in Revelation chapter 5, you'll know that the, the um, revelator, John, says, who can, st who can stand? We find that um, only Jesus can open the seal. And then here in this interlude, um, it says, those who the lamb seals as his own. And it gives this number, 144,000. How many of you have heard teaching before on the 144,000? In some segments, this has gotten really weird. Like people have said only 144,000 people can come to Jesus. So I hope I'm one of those 144,000. It's very disconcerting. Uh, but, but 
remember we talked about this at the beginning of the series on Revelation. Are the numbers in Revelation statistics or symbols? They're symbols, right? So they're always symbols. They're never like a literal statistic. When we get this number 144,000, this is really important for us to understand that 144 equals the 12, the, the 12 tribes of, um, of Israel times the 12 apostles. It symbolizes always the people of God. And then you multiply it by 10, you get a big number, and you multiply it by 10 again, you get a really big number, and then you multiply it by 10 and again, you get 144,000. The point that John is making here is who can stand? All the people of God throughout all of history. And this isn't just a small amount, but it's a large amount. And John keeps telling us all throughout Revelation, every tribe, every tongue, every kind of person. And this should encourage us. This should encourage us. It's this big, giant number because John is saying, listen, all kinds of people are going to come to Jesus. And in the 21st century, when every time you open up Twitter or your newscast and it's telling you that nobody, I mean, I must have read 10 articles this week telling me that churches, the evangelical church is done. Nobody wants religion anymore. So depressing. And I just kept coming back to this, no way, man. The book of Revelation tells me that it's going to be not just small amount of people. It's, it's going to be a huge amount of people from all kinds of, that, and that means that Jesus' words are true. The fields are white unto harvest. That there are people that sit in your office cubicle or your office, and you don't work in a cubicle anymore, you work at home. There are people that you talk to on Zoom this week who, listen, the fields are white, they want Jesus. Who can stand 144,000? Do you know that right now, right now, a billion people serve Jesus in the world? A billion. One billion people. Most of those people are living in the southern half of our... I, I'm, I'm telling you, Church of God, we got to contend for this again. we got to believe this again. Stop believing the lie that there's just like three of us out there and we're weird and I don't know if your kids serve Jesus, that's kind of a miracle and I don't know, you just kind of... I'm looking at that number, 144,000, and I think, thank God. Thank God. Who can stand? 144,000. So many of us. So many people are coming to Jesus. And in these days, I'm believing even more are coming to Jesus. Because isn't Jesus the best thing that's ever happened to you? This is not just so that we can get into some religion. I mean, who cares about this is Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to me. And the church of Jesus Christ is the best way that I, that I have ever found to know Jesus more. Okay, we're not even in the text yet. Okay, the second, the second um, there's an interlude then in the trumpets. And the question asked in the trumpets, this interlude in the trumpets is, what is the church supposed to do? What is this 144,000 people supposed to do? Like, are we just supposed to have carnivals? And I... Like, what are, we, what are we supposed to do? Um, Revelation 9.21, it, it's a series of judgments. And, and then, then in Revelation 9.21, it says that a lot of people didn't repent. And um, all that is depicted in the trumpets 1 through 6 has the goal of bringing people to repentance. Repentance simply means to turn around, to stop doing what you're doing and turn around. And God's actions in the world have the goal of bringing people to the place where they'll turn around and embrace the Lamb as Savior and King. So the 11th chapter of the drama of Revelation is all about the church bearing witness 
to the grace of God in the world. What is the church supposed to do? The church is supposed to bear witness to the grace of God. Okay, uh, Richard Bachman, we've talked about him a little bit. He's a leading Revelation scholar. And um, he suggests that in Revelation 11, what we have is a parable about the church. And this is what he says. The quote is on the screen. The people of God have been redeemed from all the nations in order to bear prophetic wit witness to all the nations. This is what the whole story of the two witnesses symbolically dramatizes. Two individuals here represent the church in its faithful witness to the world. Their story must be taken neither literally nor even as an allegory, as though the sequence of events in the story were supposed to correspond to a sequence of events in the church's history. The story is more like a parable which dramatizes the nature and the result of the church's witness. Okay, so we're going to read Revelation chapter 11. It's a wild, <laughs> it's a wild text, but I think we're going to come away from it and understand the purpose of the church, and this is really important, particularly right now, right here in the 21st century. Okay, Revelation 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Don't measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouth and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. I'm sure this isn't a life verse for anybody. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze upon their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because the two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. And, and you can continue to read. This is where we're going to stop today. Um, I, I want to talk about what, what, is, what on earth does this passage mean? Did any of you, I know some of you, I was talking to some of you and you were doing the reading with your family and a few of you said that you read this chapter when you got like di at dinner time with little kids. They were all like, I don't, what is going on here? Okay, how do we know this is about the church and not two literal people? Um, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how in Revelation chapter 2, um, what did the, la the lampstands were what? The churches. And right here in Revelation chapter 11, we are told that the two witnesses are lampstands, are two lampstands. Now, theologically, most theologians believe that it corresponds to Revelation chapter 2, where there were only two churches that were doing the will of God, really, hadn't lost their first love. And, and also... Um, there are scriptures that tell us that in two witnesses there is, there is power. Um, but we do know that this has to do with the church. Um, and 
And it becomes the answer to the question, what does the church do in this time? So I, w- I want to make a few um, observations about what the church is and how the church should be acting in these days. You know, um, as I was preparing this message, I was thinking, oh, God, like, what, for, what about for people that have come in feeling discouraged personally? I've had a few, oh, God, like, I, I, I don't really want to just talk about this. And the Lord just reminded me of this as I was standing here worshiping. You know, the best thing that we can do when we're discouraged is to lean into the gift of the church that the Lord's given us. The power of Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit didn't just come on individuals, but the Holy Spirit came on the church. And this is a powerful message. I, I, I'm be as honest as I can with you this week. Two weeks ago, I had, I had coronavirus. And, um, you know, I, I'm probably, I feel like I was the last person in the world to get it. I was, like, being sent memes from friends saying, do you even have friends? How is it that you didn't get it yet? I, I did get it. I was the last person. And my brain didn't work. And, man, I was just, like, have you ever just had a week where you just feel, like, just really discouraged? Like, you just, anybody? Yeah. And I was, I was asking the Lord, like, could I just preach an, an encouraging message to my own heart? Like, you can make it. And uh, I was trying a million ways to get out of this Revelation series. Like, maybe we could just say that it ended early. <laughs> or you could make people, you weren't here the last 10 weeks? Oh, I don't know where you were. <laughs> like, well, here I am in Revelation chapter 11. And, you know, as I'm sitting down here, I, uh, I recognized that the best way that we walk out of our discouragement is to be with one another. What we want to do when we're discouraged, what do you want to do when you're discouraged? Hide. Because nobody's like, you know what, I'm discouraged, I really want to go to a party right now. It's exactly what I want. No, 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 when you're discouraged, you think to yourself, now if I could binge watch something with 700 episodes that I could convince myself was educational. Like, I have actually at times convinced, cop shows are very educational because I'm trying to keep myself safe in the world we now live in. Right, you just want to binge watch things and my brain wasn't working. And the Lord just reminded me this morning, the best thing that he's ever given us is his church. So we lean into one another. I know the church isn't perfect. I know there are all kinds of problems. I know you've been hurt in the church. Welcome to the party. You get to be, like, we're all here saying, you know, all of us, we've all been hurt, we've all been burned, we got scars to prove it. And part of coming together is showing each other those scars. But we need each other. And this, this chapter from Revelation is prophetic word to us in this day, where the enemy wants to tell us that we don't need each other, that we really, we need each other. And we need each other more than just sitting in these comfortable purple seats. We need each other more than that. We actually need each other. We need to be able to carry one another. Okay, so here's the first observation. The church is the people of God now, and it is God who protects his church, because this is the first time in Revelation that John's actually asked to go in to do something. He's asked to measure the temple. What is happening here? There have been people that have had 
whole theology is built around it. The temple's going to be rebuilt. I don't actually think that's what's happening here. I think what's happening is that John is actually measuring the people of God. He's not measuring a physical building. We know at this time in history the temple was kaput. There was nothing to measure. And the New Testament's very clear that what became, after Pentecost came, what became the people of God? A building? No. You, 1 Corinthians says, you are the temple of the Holy Ghost. It's you. you all of us combined. And he is very clear in this passage that he's not to measure the outer court because that's where people were going to come to Jesus. I like the prophetic symbolism there, though, that says people are going to come. Don't count your chickens before they're hatched, but people are going to come. And then uh, there's all kinds of scriptures that reflect that we are the people of God. And um, the temple of God is now the people of God. And this idea where he says measure, why, why is he asking him to measure? So that we can be like all like puffed up, like there's one billion Christians on earth. Yeah. No, the point of the measure, he's hearkening back to uh, uh, Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, where um, in Zechariah 2, a man appears with a measuring line in his hand. And he's come to Jerusalem to see how wide. And so anybody who was reading this, Revelation chapter 11, would have thought, oh, this is Zechariah. And what did God say that the man of God was to measure, the, the, measure the, uh, the people of God so that he could be a fire around them? That's what, that's what the book of Zechariah tells us. In Revelation chapter 11, when John is asked to measure the people of God, it is to remind the people that God would be their protection. This, this, this is really important for us to hear right now. You're not out there protecting yourself. God is our protector. He is our fire by night. This is the way of the kingdom. And this was really important for our people who were oppressed to hear. I mean, Domitian was like running them down. He'd already killed 40,000 of them. 40,000 men, women, children were dead because they had given Jesus, they had made Jesus their Lord. you imagine reading this for the first time, Revelation chapter 11, God saying, measure the people of God, go out there and measure them, because I, I will be a fire that protects them. The second thing we learned from this chapter is that the church must be a prophetic voice of repentance. It says, and we know this because it says, I will appoint my two witnesses who are lampstands, we know this, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, uh, we're not going to get into this right now because it's, compl- it's not complicated. It's just going to take me a long time to explain it. The 1260 days, we do know, though, uh, most theologians will say this represents the time from when Jesus uh, ascended to heaven to the time that Jesus comes back. Um, it's not forever. It's for a season. Um, and they're now clothed in sackcloth. Whenever the prophets of God were clothed in sackcloth, they were calling people to repentance. They were calling people to repentance. This is answering the question again. What must the church do in this season? We must call people to repentance. And that means that we can't be afraid in these days of calling sin, sin. Of calling people, uh, uh, like calling a spade a spade. I I never want to get to heaven at the end of my life and God say, hey, pretty good job, but you kind of soft-sold the truth. You You sort of made it like a little bit candy-coated for everybody. Now, listen, I'm not saying that we have to make the gospel Buckley's because I don't think the gospel is Buckley's. 
Is that like even a thing now? Do people even, people don't even take cough medicine anymore because, okay, well anyways, if you don't know what Buckley's is, it was this terrible tasting cough syrup, the worst, and I don't know, it would be better to be, have a cough than take Buckley's, but, I mean, I'm not saying that we have to be like, you, that doesn't make us an excuse for us being awful humans. Like, you don't get to say, I'm going to be an awful human to tell you to repent, man. But it does mean we can't shy away from things being sin. There is a way Jesus talked about this, that we would be people that walk with grace and truth. And in some ways, we've sort of decided, like, we'll be one or the other. We'll be grace and everything. Just do whatever you want, everyone. Just be cheerful. And that's called Christian. Or we've been, I will only be truth. Somehow, whenever I think of that, I think of heavy metal music. If you like heavy metal music, I am sorry. The Lord, I guess, can be in it. It's just, it sounds angry. Okay, we've got to be both grace and truth. We must be people clothed in sackcloth. Now, again, let me remind you, this isn't the pastor must be clothed in sackcloth. Because we already know from Revelation chapter 1, who is the church? You are the church. So that means we all have to be people that walk with grace and with truth. What's interesting um, is that the prophets of God, if you study the prophets, this is a really good study to do at some point, the prophets were generally, like three quarters of the time, 80% of the time, they were speaking to their own people. So oftentimes when we think about the church being a prophetic voice, we think, yeah, we got to get out there to those liberals and like really own them with a lot of good. But that's not usually the job of prophets. To be a prophetic voice means to speak to our own selves. And now it's really quiet. Because when we're going to be a prophetic voice to the culture, that seems like, yes, petitions. That means placards. That means... But prophets generally spoke to their own people. And they didn't always, by the way, prophets traditionally didn't have like gather hundreds of people and speak to them. No, no, they stood like in the middle of the square and talked to Israel about how they had mistreated people, about how they had left the widow and the orphan, about how they had forgotten their first love. Isaiah 58 is a great example of a prophetic oracle to the people of God. And, And Revelation chapter 11 tells us that those are the kind of people we must be calling ourselves to repentance. The the next thing this passage tells us is that the church should have signs and wonders following it. It says, um, this is like jarring, very jarring metaphors here. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Did you read this and think, what? So what what John is talking about here is he's making reference to the fact that the church must be people like Elijah and like Moses. Elijah and Moses were people for whom the power of God followed after them. 
So that means that it's nice for us to say the power of God still works inside of me, but then, then the question becomes sometimes, well, I don't see my pastor doing that on Sunday morning. No, again, we're going to just go back to Revelation 11. Who are the people of God? Where is the temple of God? It's us. We got to pray that God would give us the strength and the courage to be people who are naturally supernatural, people for whom the power of God, and we expect the power of God to follow us, people for whom, and I am, I, like, I, I, and I'm right here with you in the 21st century saying, how do, how do we become like that? Smith Wigglesworth, um, who was a, an evangelist, and saw thousands and thousands of people healed and had very unconventional methods. And if you want to read a really good biography, read a biography about Smith Wigglesworth. But he was asked, you know, at the, towards the end of his life, well, how did you have such an amazing healing ministry? He was like, I don't know. I prayed for a million people. <laughs> oh, that's convicting, isn't it, right? Because you think, well, I mean, I, I just don't think I have the ministry of any signs and wonders. I'm not that kind of a person. And the question becomes, are, are we asking the Lord in our daily life to have signs and wonders? Because, like, what would that mean to the world if we were, like, clothed in sackcloth? So that means we're actually repenting, by the way. It doesn't mean we're pointing the finger. It means we're actually repenting. And signs and wonders were following us. I just think this becomes a really good combination for people to go, something's going on there. I mean, I might not understand it, but some, something's happening there. Can we pray and believe that God, would, that God would meet us like that? You see, the plagues, the plagues in, in the book of Exodus, this is what this passage is primarily talking about right here. The plagues, did you know that the plagues weren't just random? Like, it wasn't like God was like, you know what? Frogs. I have a thing with frogs. You know what? Gnats. I don't like gnats. We're going to send the blood in the water. No, actually, they were confronting the gods. They were confronting the Egyptian gods. What if the signs and wonders that the Lord wanted to bring us now would confront the gods of our age? What would that look like? What would it look like to be people that, that flow in that way? So it might not be a plague of gnats because maybe nobody's worshiping a gnat right now. But what if we were to be prophetic signs where our culture has had idolatry in places? Okay, the, the next thing we see here is that the church is going to face persecution. So this is where I get to be a little bit of a Debbie Downer. The church is going to face persecution. And I don't know when that persecution will come. I do know that right now, right now on earth, we have a billion Christians. Most of those billion Christians are living under very real persecution. I'm not talking about um, like little, I'm saying very real. You, you say the name of Jesus, you're dead. So what does it look like for us to support the other people of God in those places? This is why we're committed to kingdom builders, that we would say yes to, um, to helping people all over the world. Because right now, right here, right now in North America, we are living in some kind of like grace bubble where we can come to church like this, where we can like worship, where we can exercise the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the public realm and nobody, like you're not going to jail for that and you're not going to be beheaded for that. 
Now, I don't know how long that's going to last here, but to whom much is given, Jesus said, much is required. We cannot stick our head in the sand and say, you know, this is how it is for everybody. No, millions and millions of people who are at the church are not faced with this reality at all. And some of you have lived in places like that. You know this to be true. So what does it mean for us to be the people of God, clothed in repentance, leaning into the things and the spirit of God? Okay, so the church is going to face persecution. We know this. And then it says that the church actually dies. It's really weird. The scripture tells us that the two witnesses die. Weird. Very, very weird and very jarring. When you would have read this, a first-time person reading this, this would have been like heart-stopping. You know when you watch a movie and the, your favorite character in it dies and you don't want to cry because it's embarrassing because it's a movie and it's not real. But you feel that little bit of like, maybe they could come back to life at the end of it. This is how this is meant to be read. Like, what? They die? But it says that they only die for three and a half days. Again, our numbers, we remember that numbers are symbols. A very, very short period of time. And then the Spirit of God breathes on them. And what, what we find is that although the church is persecuted, the church is going to survive. This should give us great hope. The church is going to, you know, I told you, I read about 10, 15 articles this week saying the church, the church is dead. They've made such terrible decisions. And I'm, I'm going to be the first to line up in, in um, sackcloth and say, yeah, there's been in a million different ways. We've, we've done not the best. If you've read anything about the SBC scandal, we've got to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ at the Southern Baptist Convention. They've had a major sexual abuse scandal. And it feels like, I mean, I open up my email every day, and every day I get an email about somebody else having some kind of moral failure. So disheartening. And the world is trying to tell us the church is dead. That what we're doing right here, right now, that how we gather, how we, this is going to be like very short-lived and we're going to die. But Revelation 11 is this really amazing uh, reminder, the Spirit of God is going to breathe life into the church. And I don't know about you, but I want to be part of that resurrection. It means that I have to keep myself clothed in sackcloth. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. Some of us need to lean into this and say, Spirit of God, I need your breath to breathe life into me. And they stood on their feet, and terror struck all those who saw them. Why terror? Did you read this and think, what? Wouldn't this be, like, amazing? Okay, so this is where Revelation doesn't let us off the hook here. Conviction, always, like, listen, if you're doing your own thing, if you're doing your own thing and you've lived with the adage, like, God isn't really real and I can do whatever I want to do, and then all of a sudden something's dead comes back to life, uh, you're not going, oh, great. You're thinking, oh, woe is me right? This is the right, this is, this is the way that we respond when we are afraid. And it is, listen, our God is not just a teddy bear in the sky. He is a God of justice and power. And then 
And then we learn this, that the church should call people. This is our job. This is our job in the 21st century. If Jesus should tarry, this will be our job in the 22nd century, that we should call people to the grace-filled arms of Jesus. Okay, it says that, and by the way, the little verse, um, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, talking to the prophets, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. This is a scripture where um, we get the theological idea that God will call the church home, that he will rapture them. By the way, the, the, the book of Revelation doesn't have the word rapture in it at all. There's, so for those of you that grew up thinking, there's no, there's no such word. We, that's a construct. Now, we get the word from this idea. And I would be of the persuasion that this is exactly what God is going to do, that he's not going to cause his church to suffer, but he is going to call us up into the sky. Now, if you are of another persuasion, you don't have to leave the church. It's fine. It's all going to pan out in the end. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. He is calling us home. He is coming back. And we can have debates about it, and we can start a small group about that and just fight about it for 12 weeks. Listen, listen to me. In the 80s, there were wild fights and church splits over the book of Revelation. I want to call us to more maturity than that. Yes? I want to call us to say, it's okay that we disagree about, like, this isn't, this isn't a life or, we're not going to lose the plot over one verse. We're going to just learn to be civil with one another because this could be the signs and wonders that follow us. In a world that is fighting its guts out about every last thing. I mean, you can't breathe without somebody deciding to try to cancel you. And some of you here have already been canceled. I'm sorry, you're not canceled here. Maybe a prophetic voice for us is to not cancel each other. To say, hey, I disagree about that, but that's, um, that's fine. Okay. The church should call people to the grace-filled arms of Jesus. Revelation 11 tells us that the church's job is to be a grace filled teller of truth at the very hour there's a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the god of heaven what jess did you get the wrong scripture on here for the grace filled okay again you got to go back to the to the book of zechariah and zechariah um it, it, the whole book of Zechariah is telling us that God's going to judge the people and only a third will be left. Like everybody's basically is telling us in Zechariah, everybody, God is so mad, everybody's going to die. Okay, this is sort of the sentiment you get reading it. Revelation tells us, no, 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 no. The grace of God has come. We are living in the dispensation of grace, which means that, that listen, more people are going to come to Jesus than not. Oh, doesn't that make you just... Thank God for the book of Revelation. I mean, it's got all these wild things, but thank God for the book of Revelation. People are going to turn to Jesus. People are going to turn to God. We can, we can, actually, we can actually have hope today. Those people you're praying for today, they're going to turn to Jesus. Yes? Those kids that are away from God, that aren't served, they're going to turn to Jesus. Yes? Because we're going to make the decision to be clothed in sackcloth. We are going to be obedient to the word of God, clothe ourselves in sackcloth and say, God, would, re would signs and wonders follow us so that, the, so that the world could know that you were real? Okay, so what does this mean for me? Okay, first thing is this. The church matters in God's drama. The church matters. So if it matters to God, it should matter to us too.
Um, it's interesting that the book of Revelation, in Revelation 11, it doesn't just say, and this is for all the individuals, like every individual out there, go out there and do your, do your best. Try to get to level 900. Nope, 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 nope. We're better together. We're stronger together. I mean, do we have problems? Yes, but we are stronger together. The, the second thing is this, our main job as the church, the, the church's main job, and this is, I have a theological commitment to this like fire. Our main job is to be a witness for Jesus. The church can get off track, listen, being all kinds, and we're going to do all kinds of fun things, and like we're going to be nice to each other and send each other casseroles when we're sick, and we're going to do that, but it's not, it's not the main purpose. When, when, listen, when that becomes the main purpose, we get ingrown. The main purpose, Revelation chapter 11 tells us, our main job is to be a witness, a witness to the culture that doesn't yet know Jesus. So the question for my life is, are the things that I'm doing, am I bearing witness to Jesus? Am I bearing witness to Jesus in my life? Everything we do, we have to run through the filter. Is this being a witness to the grace of Jesus? Because this is the point. This is the point. Finally, let me just say this. I can't give up on the church and neither can you because God isn't giving up on the church. We know this from Revelation 11 right till the very end. God says yes to his church. Yes, yes, yes. Can I just have you close your eyes and bow your heads? Right here, right now. Listen, some, some of you are... Um, you're here and maybe you're really discouraged. Maybe you're feeling how I was feeling this week. Like, just like, ugh. I'm going to pray. Uh, in a minute, we're gonna, I'm going to call the prayer team forward. Can I ask just the prayer team to come forward? Just wherever you are, just you know who you are. Just feel free to come now. I feel like God wants to bring um, encouragement Three, to some of you. Four who maybe are almost feeling like you want to give up. Like you're not sure if you matter. You're not sure if it's like, you're not sure if anybody sees you. But I believe God wants to come and bring supernatural encouragement to you today. Supernatural encouragement that you are not just doing this out of your own strength, that God actually brings he has designed his church to walk with you. Maybe you're here and you've never said yes to Jesus. I want to call you today to make the decision to put your hand in the hand of Jesus. His hand is full of grace, full of grace, full of compassion towards you. And his posture to you today is saying, come, make a decision to follow me. Not to make a decision about religion or I don't know, getting a golden star from God, but to actually put your hand in his, to repent, to say, this is the way I was going, God, and now I want to go a different way. So two things. If you're here and you're feeling discouraged, like you're not sure, I, I want to encourage you just to take a step of faith. I know God can encourage you in your seat, in the balcony, in the sides. I, I know he can. But I know that there is something powerful um, when we take a step of faith and say, God, would you come and do something like, I, I'm, I'm taking a step to you. The book of James tells us that if we take steps to God, that he takes steps to us. This is the way of the kingdom. So God, I pray for every person here today. I pray for every person that's come in feeling discouraged, God. I pray that you would encourage them by the power of your Holy Spirit.
God, I pray that you would be um, the lifter of their head this morning. And God, I pray that we would make the commitment as people to lean into your church because you ultimately, God, this is how you designed us to work in community. And I pray that you would just encourage your people today in Jesus' name. If you're here and you're discouraged, do not, can I just speak very frankly to you just for a minute? Don't wait and say next week I'll, I'll get encouraged. Like I can make it. I know a lot of you are like professional stiff upper lip people. Like you've made, you've made a lifetime, you've made a whole lifetime of having a stiff upper lip and doing it on your own. Can I encourage you to come and get prayer by somebody? Because you never know what God is going to do. You never know how he's going to speak powerfully. You never know how your situation is going to change. I just encourage you to come now. So worship team just leads us. Would you stand with me? Thank you for joining us today on Journey Church Podcast. For more information about our ministry, visit myjourney.church.